We are continuing in our short series on self-talk and sanctification. And we have been looking at the Bible to see if it gives us any help in understanding our thoughts and in managing our thoughts and in guiding the conversations that all of us have inside of our heads. We've been asking questions like, um, does the Bible address our inner thoughts? Is God aware of the dialogues that we carry on inside of our heads and our heart that nobody else is aware of? The answer is a very clear yes. God is aware of that dialogue. And yes, the Bible does address our self-talk. There's a passage of scripture which is in Psalm 51.6 and it says that God desires truth in our innermost being. God is concerned about what happens inside of us as much as he is concerned about what happens outside of us. We have asked and considered the question, does what you think and say inside of yourself matter to God? Yes, it does matter to God. And if the truth be known, um, my mom used to say this to me um, dozens of times growing up as a kid, uh, and I won't mimic her voice because that wouldn't be honoring to my mother, but she would say, you are what you eat, Paul, as I would maybe come home with a chocolate bar or want to skip dinner for dessert and those kinds of things. And we understand what's behind that, that what we put into our physical bodies in a large way determines the health of those physical bodies. In much the same way, I think it would be safe to say you are what you think. What you think determines your attitudes and your behaviors. And I think that that's an important thing for us to understand. As I have been having conversations with people over the last uh, number of weeks, and you may have been having some yourself, um, I've come to understand that for some people this has been a difficult uh, thing to look into this series of self-talk. Because the process of becoming aware of your thoughts and maybe having to deal with them has been a little bit unnerving. Uh, it's sometimes safe to just ignore uh, and pretend that something's not happening. Sometimes we do that physically with our bodies, you know, and, and I think men are more prone to this than women, but we can tend to have something going on in our bodies and just keep putting it off, keep ignoring it, keep pretending that it's not influencing us or not impacting us. And then finally, we, we end up having to go to the doctor or our, or a good friend or our spouse says, it's time you're going to the doctor. And we go to the doctor and we get a diagnosis. Often the diagnosis is maybe not what we wanted to hear, but once it's diagnosed, then we can begin to tackle the problem that we're dealing with. I think that is somewhat what goes on in our minds as well, in our spiritual and our mental health. We, we want to kind of assume that there's nothing going on there, or that it really doesn't matter, or that it's really not having that much of an impact on my day-to-day life. But as one individual said, unless we attend to our self-talk, we are often unaware of the content of those conversations. And if we're unaware of the content of those conversations, then we're unaware of their impact on our lives. And so I think it's been a helpful exposure for us to say, you know, what I think matters. What I think does have an impact on my life. I understand for many that this is a very personal subject. You know, there's there's things that we love to talk about and talk about freely about sports and, you know, about our jobs and, and uh, you know, maybe some of our hobbies. But you start zeroing in on behaviors and then we get a little bit more testy and a little bit more uncomfortable. You start zeroing in on our thoughts and it becomes a pretty intimidating factor. But if we don't bring these things out into the open, if we don't bring them under the scrutiny of the Word of God, 
How will we ever achieve sanctification of our spirit? In a few weeks, we're going to get together and it'll be the end of the series. And I want to, at that um, time, hopefully give a bit of a pathway to how we can get a hold of this, to pull it all together and say, okay, I don't want to call it a how-to because I, I don't like how-tos, but just some practical steps that we can all take on a regular basis to help us to sanctify um, our inner thoughts and our self-talk. But before we get there, I, I came across this uh, in, a, in a book that I'm reading, which I thought was very helpful. Uh, five basic steps that we can follow to control the stream of our thinking and to begin to get a hold of our thoughts. And I think this in itself is a helpful way to begin. And I think they're very biblical things. The first one is thought capturing. That's a very biblical truth, isn't it? Second uh, Corinthians chapter 10, verse 4. Take every thought captive. So that is something that we can begin to say in our hearts and minds. Okay, I can manage my thoughts. They don't have to manage me. A second thing that they say is thought evaluating. Never assume that your thoughts are neutral. You have control over them. You have the ability to to consider your thinking and to say, okay, this is helpful or this is harmful. This is sinful or this is righteous. And so we can evaluate our thoughts. We can challenge those thoughts. We are not um, victims of our thoughts. We do not have to allow them to control our lives. And we can only do this when we submit them to the Word of God in the grid of Scripture, where it says that even the Word of God is able to judge what? The thoughts and intentions of our hearts. So I, I think that's very encouraging that, that we can challenge those thoughts through the Word of God. We can change those thoughts. Romans chapter 12, 1 uh, to 2, uh, partly says, And be transformed by the renewing of your mind. As we meditate on Scripture, as we memorize Scripture, as we read Scripture, as we talk about Scripture, as we think about God, as we think rightly about God, we begin to renew our mind. And then the last one is thought prevention. You can stop or severely curtail the thoughts that get into your mind and stay there. I, I, I like, and we'll probably mention this at the very last series, um, Proverbs chapter 4, verse 23, where it says there, above all else, guard your heart because it is the wellspring of life. That we need to, we need to be the ones that control and influence the thoughts that will pop into our hearts and minds. You do that by what you read. You do that by what you watch. You do that by what you listen to. You do that by what you think about. And so, so we can capture our thoughts. We can evaluate them. We can challenge them. We can change them and we can prevent them. That in itself is a very helpful um, uh, five steps on which we can get a hold of our thought life. The text that I want to go to this morning um, will give us an instance of one who didn't practice those sorts of things. It's a text that reinforces the importance of including God in our inner conversations. It matters that we, that we don't just, so to speak, think to ourselves, but that we allow God to be part of those conversations. Because remember, as I've said before, our self-talk is most often subjective. And it is most often um, guided only by ourselves. And so we need to include God in that. I think it illustrates also the passage, the deceptive nature of our self-talk. That the conversations that we have with ourselves, if, if we don't include God or His Word, they will lead us into potential places of considerable harm. The passage that I'm looking at also is bookended by self-talk. It's bookended by Scripture saying, and He said to Himself, or He said in His heart. 
That for me is, okay, Paul, sit up and listen to this. God's trying to get your attention. And then when we leave God out of our self-talk, as I said, the self-deception that we can enter into can have long-term impacts. I want us to turn to First Samuel chapter 27 this morning. If you're using a pew Bible, it's a little bit of a harder book to find, um, uh, or book to find, but it's on page 249. And the pew Bibles are just in front of you, so um, rather than kind of trying to guide you there, you can just turn to page 249. And you will find the text that we're going to spend some time in this morning. I want to read it and um, listen carefully as we read God's word and begin to uh, submit your mind to the Holy Spirit. Then David said in his heart, or another version would say, then David said to himself, or another version would say, then David thought. Now I shall perish one day by the hand of Saul. There is nothing better for me than that I should escape to the land of the Philistines. Then Saul will despair of seeking me any longer within the boundaries of Israel, and I shall escape out of his hand. So David arose and went over, he and the 600 men who were with him, to Achish, the son of Moak, king of Gath. And David lived with Achish at Gath, he and his men, every man with his household. And David with his two wives, Ahinoam of Jezreel and Abigail of Carmel, Nabal's wife. And when it was told Saul that David had fled to Gath, he no longer sought him. Then David said to Achish, If I have found favor in your sight, let a place be given to me in one of the country towns that I may dwell there. For why should your servant dwell in the royal city with you? So that day Achish gave him Ziglag. And at Ziklag, and therefore Ziklag has belonged to the kings of Judah to this day, And the number of days that David lived in the country of the Philistines was a year and four months. Now David and his men went up and made raids against the Gershurites, against the Gerzites, and the Amalekites, for these were the inhabitants of the land from of old, as far as Shur to the land of Egypt. And David would strike the land and would leave neither man nor woman alive. But he would take away the sheep, the oxen, the donkeys, and the camels, and the garments, and come back to Achish. When Achish asked, where have you raided today? David would say, against the Negev of Judah, or against the Neged of Jerhalamites, or against the Neged of the Kenites. And David would leave neither man nor woman alive to bring news to Gath, thinking, lest they should tell about us and say, So David has done this. Such was his custom all the while he lived in the country of the Philistines. And Achish trusted David, thinking or saying to himself, He has made himself an utter stench to his people Israel. Therefore, he shall always be my servant. Father, we come to your word and we recognize our need of your Holy Spirit to teach us to understand it and to apply it to our lives. On the surface of it, it seems like a rather strange account in the life of one of your servants. And yet there is a world of teaching in it for us. So help us to make sense of it correctly, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. On the surface of it, this text seems to indicate 
that our self-talk can land us in a world of hurt. When you leave God out of your self-talk, beware. Many recognize this, and you can find this out on your own, that this is a godless text. That is, that God is nowhere to be found in these verses that I read. He does not speak. He is not consulted. He's not there. God is absent in this chapter, by which I mean God is not mentioned. David is alone. I don't know about you, but have you? I have been in those places where sometimes God seems distant. It seems like he's silent. It seems like I can't find him. And if a biographer were to write a a story about me, she might say that this was one of the times when Paul acted on his own. There was no clear evidence of God's leading in his life. And I'm just guessing, but I suspect that the rest of the story would not be pretty. We don't know why God is absent from this text. We just know that he is. And it's in times like this where we need to be very much aware of the kinds of things that we say to ourselves. So the question I ask for us today is, what can we learn from a godless text? What can we learn from a text in which God is nowhere to be found? As I was thinking about this passage and reading a number of different commentaries, I was surprised by the breadth of interpretation of this passage. Uh, I find I found two extreme um, uh, positions and then a number of positions in the middle. The one extreme position was an individual who clearly affirmed David in this passage. They would say how this passage describes a very difficult time in David's life. It was a situation without any obvious assurance of God's guidance. But David moved on in faith. That he remembered past times of God's faithfulness. And as such, the text illustrates ways in which believers are often forced to make important decisions without the benefit of a specific word from God. That ought to check your heart. That there are times when a believer is forced to make a decision without a specific word from God. David is doing then what seems logical. He's walking through the doors open to him and God honors what he does. As he moves out into faith, this person goes on to say he finds favor in the sight of King Achish of Gath. And he reminds us that we ought to submit our entire decision-making process to God and to trust him to enlighten our God-given reason and logic to guide us in our important decisions in life. The same man then concluded, David presents us here with an example of carefully making thoughtful decisions with the best critical facilities we have been given by God while trusting him to guide along the way. That was one interpretation of this passage. David is doing well. He is operating by faith. God is not quiet, or God has been silent, so he needs to take things into his own hands. On the other end of the spectrum is uh, are those that were critical of David. And they would go on to say that this passage describes a situation where David loses all perspective in the midst of a difficult and despairing situation, and he acts without any consideration of God. This is a foolish believer, one would say. Something cracked in David's mind, and from the heights of moral victory over Saul, he plunged now into doubts that were to set him for a second time on the road to Gath and refuge with his enemies, the Philistines. He goes on to indicate that such actions would shock us if it were not so much a reoccurrent theme in the Christian life. How could he repeat his earlier error of leaving Israel for an illegitimate and illusory sanctuary with the Philistines. 
Why did he abandon what he knew to be the will of God and as yet revoked word through the prophet Gad sometime before he said, go into the land of Judah. And he tried a failed solution of earlier backslides. Why is David now the one who plays the fool? Two very different interpretations of the same passage. As I reflected on it, I leaned to the last one that I referenced you to, with a little bit of grace sprinkled on top, though. Because I think on balance, the text is sympathetic to David. Yet it presents him in the wrong. The text understands David and yet is not willing to justify all of his conduct. And so I think that's how it's best to understand this text. Context really matters. And I spent the time this last week to read um, the book of Samuel up till, well, the end of the book of 1 Samuel. And as you read the book, particularly from about, um, oh, I think it's chapter 16 on, you begin to see that David's life has been one of continually running from Saul. From the moment that he was anointed king, he was, he was in a position now of incredible, um, difficulty with Saul. Saul was jealous of him. Saul was envious of him. And so as you go through those books, you find very quickly that David became the top man on the list of Israel's ten most wanted. If there was a poster, Israel's most wanted man, it would be David. Every Israelite that was loyal to Saul was looking to hand David in or to give his head to King Saul. And so the, the, the first nine chapters talk about this difficulty. He had taken his own family into the land of Moab so the king of Moab could protect them while he was trying to run from Saul. David, though, had continued to display his loyalty to Saul. Time and time again, he would speak his loyalty, and even more so, his actions demonstrated his loyalty. Twice, David had been given just prime opportunities to kill Saul. His men were willing to do it so there would be no blood on his hands, and yet he said, no, I can't touch God's anointed. I cannot take his life, leave him alone. All through those times, those almost 10 years, David had trusted God. Something happens now. Something tweaks in, in his mind, and, and I wonder, what was he thinking? Clearly, he understood that at the end of chapter 6, we find that once again, he has, he's on the other side of a, a valley mountain, and he's dealing with Saul, and Saul had just tried to get him again, and David had saved his life. Saul is going his way, David is going his way, and David recognizes that this is not going to last. It's only a matter of of days or maybe weeks or maybe a month and Saul is going to get 3,000 of Israel's best men and he's going to come after me again. And so I think David is thinking, I can't do this one more time. I've done it enough. I've I've honored God enough. I've, I've trusted God enough. I'm tired. But I think, why didn't he act like he had in the past? Why didn't he inquire of God? The the, the first number of chapters of Samuel said that David did that often. He inquired of the God. Should I do this God? Should I do that God? He also had Abathar, the priest, with him, who brought with him an ephod, which was used in discerning the will of God. So why didn't he go to the priest and say, I'm really, I'm not feeling good. I'm really worried. I'm confused. I can't find God. I don't want to talk to God. Will you talk to God for me? He doesn't do what we find him doing later in the book of Samuel, where it says, and David strengthened himself in the Lord. 
when everything was failing around him, David got alone with God and he said, okay, God, I'm in tough. Would you help me? I don't exactly know. The text doesn't tell us exactly how he got to this situation. It just seems that David has got to the point where, where he's lost sight of, of any spiritual or eternal perspective and he's just done. I can't take this any longer. Some would argue that David is in the dangerous place of just after success. Many people will tell you that one of the most dangerous times in your life is after a victory or after success. It might be you've just climbed a mountain or it might be a spiritual victory. Um, the book, uh, the story of uh, um, Elijah, Elisha. Is it Elisha that did on Carmel? Elijah. Elijah. He had that great victory on Mount Carmel. And just an amazing revelation of God as, as fire came down from heaven. And then as he prayed for rain and a tiny little crowd came and, and it grew. And then rain just happened everywhere. And then the next day it was in the court of Ahab and his wife Jezebel. And Ahab says, um, or Jezebel says, I'm going to kill you. And what he flees. He runs. After a great success, he runs. And so maybe David is, is after another success, he, he just he lets down his guard. Or maybe he's just plumb tired. Some of you have been like that. You know, you, you get in a circumstance and you're not maybe physically tired, but you're mentally tired or you're spiritually tired. And we just don't think carefully enough. One person wrote, when men are tired, and we could say women too, when men and women are tired, temptation seems like a cool drink and sin like a good night's sleep. Oh, I'm just going to give in just going to compromise. He wasn't looking for God. He wasn't listening to God. Maybe it was something like the people of Israel who couldn't hear God because their oppression was so severe. What do you tell yourself when everybody around you is married, but you're not? You're still single. What do you say to yourself when you've been praying about something for a long time, but God hasn't yet given you clear leading, but you need to act or you're going to lose an opportunity. What is your inner dialogue like when the circumstances of your life just don't change? If we were in the previous nine chapters, we would have run and fought with David. We would have hid with him. We would have traveled with his men. But it's hard for us really to put ourselves in his shoes. Having been hounded for years by somebody so intimidated by you, that their sole goal is to kill you. It doesn't surprise me that David was feeling a little bit down. So how do we get into his mind? Well, the Bible helps us get into his mind. It's the anatomy of self-deception or the logic of deception. It's the danger of talking to yourself and leaving God out of the conversation. Remember, David is looking for relief. He's just hoping that Saul will give up hunting him so that he can just have a period of rest. He's tired of doing what is right. He's tired of waiting for God. Remember, we read Psalm 40, a beautiful psalm. We've read it twice this morning. I waited patiently for the Lord. Blessed is the one who trusts in the Lord. I'm so glad that the scripture doesn't falsely describe humanity. Because I think if we're honest with ourselves, there are times when we have waited patiently for the Lord. 
And then there's times when we said, God, you're not fast enough. God, I'm not waiting to hear for you. I got to make a decision. Earlier, David had said, there is but one step between me and death. That's how close he felt Saul was on his heels. And this relentless pursuit of Saul was just driving him crazy. This was David's most desperate hour. So again, I ask yourself, or ask ourselves, what do we say to ourselves when we say, I'm still not married? Or I really need this job, but God hasn't yet given me any direction. Or my finances are in the balance, and so, you know, ah, I gotta, I gotta do this. Or my circumstances are so overwhelming, I can't wait for a word from God. Or my spouse is never gonna change. So I'm going to have to act. It's a dangerous place to be. Because there is a way that seems right unto a man. And many of you know how the rest of that ends. And so what is, happens in the mind of somebody who, who rejects God from their thoughts and from their inner dialogue? Well, you see it in, in his, his humanistic self-talk. You, you see David do it. He said to himself... He's just talking to himself now. He's, he's left God out of the picture. He's left any sort of promises of God or word of God out of the picture. And he says, now I shall one day perish at the hands of Saul. It's certainly not what we would read in Psalm 42 and 43 where the, the writer of that psalm says, why so downcast my soul? Why so disquieted within? And then before he can keep going deeper, he says, but hope in God. I shall yet trust in the Lord. He is my ever-present help. And again, isn't this the David that we we talked about that when he was really, really distressed and really in, in tough times and the people were talking of stoning him, he said to himself, I need to strengthen myself in the Lord. I need to encourage myself in the Lord. But here we see David is all alone. God is nowhere in his self-talk. God is no longer part of his inner conversation. God is out of the picture. And so now he's just thinking for himself without that divine perspective. All he had was the present. He'd lost sight of God in the past. He'd lost sight of the promises of God. He'd lost sight of the promises of God in the future. And now he was thinking for himself. It was Charles Spurgeon who who commented that there is no indication even that David prayed in this situation. He says, in every other action of David, you find some hint that he asked counsel of God. But this time, what did he talk with? Why? With the most deceitful thing that he could have found. With his own heart. Do you understand that? That's a quote from Jeremiah 17.9. The heart is desperately wicked. Who can understand it? We talk only with our hearts and we open ourselves up to deception. So talking to ourselves and not including God or truth is very unwise. And if left unchecked, eventually it will leak out into our behaviors and our attitudes. That's what we have been saying all along. And we know it to be true that what you say to yourself will eventually come out in your behaviors and your actions. The second thing that we see is that he he became pessimistic. It's the natural progression. I shall one day perish. There's nothing better for me to do than to escape into the land of the Philistines. Really? Like that's your best option, David? There is nothing better for you to do than to take matters into your own hand. There is nothing better for you to do than to sin before God. 
Have you ever noticed that it's difficult to find an optimistic Eeyore-type person? It's almost like an oxymoron. Their only optimism is that there's certainty that things are going to get worse. And I think that's where David is at this point in his life. He is just, that's all he's certain of is that things are only going to get worse. He needs to deal with things. The law of averages are finally going to catch up to him. That, that Saul has tried again and again and again. He's escaped again and again and again. But one of these times, Saul is going to win. So I'm better off in the land of the Philistines. David had been anointed king of Israel. As a young man, the, the prophet Samuel had selected him out of all his brothers, in front of all his brothers and family and friends. Saul had poured oil over him, proclaiming that he would be king of Israel. Earlier, God had told him, David, you need to find refuge in Judah. Time and time again, God had delivered David from the hand of Saul against all odds. Individuals, Jonathan and Abigail, had come and confirmed to him, you will certainly be on the throne, David. God has told you, and it will happen. God's word to him had been that he would one day become king. How many times had he then been reassured by others and reassured by God that he would be king? God had clearly spoken to him, and yet he was certain now that Saul would finish him off. Godless self-talk breeds pessimism. Have you talked to yourself like this this week? And then finally, irrational. It becomes irrational. There is nothing better for me to do than to escape to the land of the Philistines. Then Saul will despair of seeking me any longer within the borders of Israel, and I shall escape out of his hand. I, I wondered to myself, how could that be the best option available to David? How could it be that God would ever think that it would be best for David to live in the land of his enemies than with God's people? How could it be better that David be, be in the land of the Philistines rather than in the land of Israel? How could it be better for him to disregard God and his promises to him and take matters into his own hand? And yet David seeks refuge in the land of the Philistines rather than God for his security. And this happens to us. I'm just trying to be honest with us. Sometimes we say the best thing for me to do is just leave the people of God for a period of time. I'm done with them. They're not helpful. I'm not being encouraged by them. I'm done with them. The best thing for me to do is pursue this relationship. God isn't providing somebody for me, so I'm going to go after somebody on my own. The best thing for me to do is compromise just this once. God hasn't answered my prayer. God hasn't made himself clear to me, so I'm going to take matters into my own hands. And as a result, David begins to deceive himself. Beloved, my point is not at all to rail on David or to rail on you and I. My point is just to demonstrate to us the danger of leaving God out of our thoughts and out of those conversations that we have to ourselves. Because as we read, David now was entering into 16 months of aloneness. 16 months of being separated from the people of God. I want us to understand that this is important stuff. So what's the, as we continue then, the anatomy of self-deception, uh, of self-deception, what are the actions then that resulted in David's life? Because remember, we've been saying that, that the things that we say to ourselves, those dialogues that we have in our minds uh, and that we, that we have in our hearts, they will influence our attitudes and behaviors. That is what determines what we will do. So what do we find happening in David's life? Well, you look at verses 2 to 4 and you find a false sense of security. 
it seems bizarre to me. And it struck me uh, as I read this. Where does David go for refuge? To Achish of Gath. Does that ring any bells to you? Gath. Where was Goliath from? Gath. Only years earlier, David had come out against Goliath because he was opposing the people of God. He was an enemy of God. What in the world is David thinking? I would be better off in the land of my enemy? And then you read a few chapters later, I think it's in chapter 20 or maybe chapter 21, where David is fleeing from Saul again and he goes into Gath. And when he goes into Gath, he goes to the same King Achish and his people come to uh, King, King Achish's people come to him and said, what are you doing having David in your court? Don't you know that David, they sing about him, that Saul has killed his thousands and David is his ten thousands and David was fearful. And it says that he faked being insane. He slobbered and he faked insanity so he could get freedom from this king. Where was his head at? Don't you think he'd be recognized carrying this extra large sword into the land of Gath? And yet he says, Gath is the best place for me to be. What was I thinking? Have a word with yourself. You see, if we're only listening to ourselves, though, and rather talking to ourselves, if we are only talking to ourselves without any external reference to God or his word, we will make decisions that are absolutely contrary to what God would have us do. More than this, David put his whole family and his friends in jeopardy. He took his men and his wives with them. His irrationalism now, this self-talk, was being worked out in his actions and his behaviors. His conclusion was this. Saul would give up hunting him and he would escape. And it was told, Saul, that David had fled to Gath like Jonah had fled to Tarshish and like Moses had fled to the desert. So David now flees to Gath, flees to Gath and it works. There's a very, very fascinating sentence at the end of verse 4. And when it was told Saul that David had fled Gath, he no longer sought him. You need to think about that sentence for a little bit of time. It's a real important sentence. Is that a confirmation of God's will? Is that God's way of saying in his word that, okay, David, you know, you, 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 didn't, you didn't make a wise decision, but now you've got peace from Saul? In other words, does peace mean that you have made the right decision, loved ones? The fact that something works does not mean that it is right. You know, we need to learn that. Our kids need to learn that. Pragmatism. That's the double-edged sword of pragmatism. It works, but very often it's rooted in some kind of compromise. Sure, David's pursuit of, or Saul's pursuit of David had ended, but where was David? He's in a foreign land. He's serving a pagan king. He's outside of the land of God's blessing. You tell me, where is the security in that? The next thing that we read is an, 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 an unhealthy loyalty. David calls the king of Gath, his servant. Wow. He had talked himself into serving a pagan king. And then there's finally this worldly compromise. David was given a city, Ziklag, it 
where for the next 16 months, he set down roots and he remained there. Uh, How could it be better, loved ones, for David to be in the land of Gath? Earlier, he had said one day in the courts of God is better than 10,000 elsewhere. How did his thinking come about that he would all of a sudden conclude that it's better for him to dwell in the land of Philistines? How godly were David's actions now as he inflicted such brutal punishment on the towns to cover up his deception? Killing every person alive. Thank the Lord that the Amalekites hadn't done the same thing to David only a couple chapters later. As David had left Ziklag and and left his, his, his families behind there to go and join in a war, the Amalekites came and they just took everybody captive. David was behaving even worse than the pagans were behaving. Beloved, brilliance and success are no proper measure of the rightness of a course of action. These are certainly the normal criteria of pragmatism, and they are the common yardsticks of achievement in our society in which we live. David was brilliant and successful, but he slaughtered whole communities of people and lied through his teeth to Achish in the process. I love this sentence. He had left his principles in the mountains of Judah and boxed himself into a corner where deceit and ruthlessness were the staples that kept him alive. The beautiful thing about this text, though, is that God is merciful and that God is gracious and that God would bring David back into the land of Israel and set him upon the throne. That is the amazing thing of God's grace and mercy, loved ones. We ought not to forget the 16 months of separation, but we ought to remember the amazing grace and mercy of God. David had deceived himself through his self-talk and it had impacted his actions and his thinking and it filtered down so that it became who he was. When we exclude God from even those darkest times in our lives, when we exclude God when the circumstances of our life seem crushing, we open ourselves up to humanistic thinking, to pessimistic thinking, and to irrational behavior. Unchecked, that kind of self-talk will lead us in a way of living out decisions that offer false security, create an unhealthy loyalty, and encourage worldly compromise. The text doesn't tell us about um, how this kind of thinking invaded David's thoughts. I wish we had more time to consider this sort of stuff, but a lot of people have asked me, well, Paul, where do your thoughts come from then? How do they just come into your head? Uh, We can talk about that maybe sometime. The important thing is, I, I think that As Christians, we battle with three spheres of life. We battle with our flesh. And the Bible tells us very clearly that out of the heart come evil thoughts. And so some of those evil thoughts just come from our flesh. Some of those evil thoughts, though, come because of the world around us. And and the stuff that we watch, the stuff that we read, the stuff that we listen to. uh, All of that stuff influences the kind of things that pop into our head. And then also the evil one himself, I believe, can impact our thinking. After all, it was said later on in the passage or in the book of Samuel that um, Satan incited David to number the people of Israel. So even the evil one can plant thoughts in our heads. 
So I don't know where these thoughts came in David's mind. I do know that he could have checked them. So loved ones, as I think about this, the will of God for our lives involves much more than escaping from Saul. It's difficult, though, for us to see that when we're being hounded by Saul. It's at times like these where we need to learn to guard our hearts. It's at times like these that we need to learn to take every thought captive. It's at times like these that we need to force ourselves to consider the promises of God. It's at times like these that we need to subject ourselves to the people of God and their godly encouragements to us. It's at times like these that we need to meditate on the character of God. There is no indication that David considered any of this. How can godless self-talk ever turn out well? And I am sure of this. God never sent David to Gath. He never sends anyone to serve sin. And so David is human, just like you and I. And from my vantage point, as I reflected on this, as David led, left God out of those inner conversations, out of his thought life, he made a series of mistakes. And I don't fare any better when I do the same. I haven't always included God in my thoughts and in my conversations. And I have spent time in Gath, so to speak. But I pray more and more that my experience will be the experience of the psalmist in Psalm 40. I waited patiently for the Lord. Blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord. We need to learn to be like Christ, don't we? In the worst time of his life, when he was in the Garden of Gethsemane, he prayed, My Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Not as I will, though, but as you will. I don't have any easy answers to this text. But I do think that we can gain some wisdom from Proverbs chapter 3. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all of your ways, acknowledge him and he will make your path straight. Or if you're better with songs, trust and obey for there's no other way to be happy in Jesus but to trust and obey.